Open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Father, I have anticipated this for a long time. Look forward to reaching this point in Scripture, which I believe will have such an impact on us, Father. We found ourselves over the years drifting into the Psalms many times through many other studies because there's so much so much truth and passion and emotion in these words. And I pray that we wouldn't miss a single one. We thank you tonight, Lord, that you've gathered us here. And uh, again, pray that you would help us just to shake off all the, uh, the chaff of the week that we might completely hear you. Ears unclogged, hearts wide open, ready to receive of your word, both on the written page, spoken by your Spirit, and by the very presence of the word, Jesus Christ, the Logos of God. We worship you, Father, not because we have to, but because we want to. And may our worship continue in the Word now as we study and seek to know. In Jesus' name, Amen. The first psalm, chapter 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his, delight, in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we open up the first chapter. We begin what the Jewish people call Sefer Tehillim, the book of praises. We call it the Psalms. That's from the Greek. Much of what we have in our Hebrew translation, our Old Testament scriptures, come from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible about 250 or so years before Christ. It was a Bible used by many Jews, a lot of the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews, a lot of the Greek-speaking people in that, in that time of Jesus. And so they settled on the Psalms. Why the Psalms? Well, the Greek word for psalm, psalmos, which means to pluck, having to do with stringed instruments. As we see so many of the Psalms are written this way, Psalm 33, verse 2, says, Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Now that's not the deceiver, that's the lyre is in a ten-stringed kind of funky instrument. There's a picture of one up there in the corner there. It's what David would have played as we were singing, Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. I was imagining in my mind David up on the mountainside with that, with that lyre in hand and, and, and strumming that and just thinking and, and singing out to the Lord. Writing down and playing. It was an outpouring of his heart. So much of the Psalms are that. But the Greek psalmos to pluck because David was plucking as he was writing. As he's pouring out his heart, he's plucking on the strings of his heart, on the strings of the lyre. It says, 
Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. And Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And what's interesting is he mentioned psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Three different styles of worship. Three different aspects of singing praise to the Father. All three of these different and unique. Well, the psalms literally meaning, again, to pluck. But in all this, Paul says, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul rightly puts the focus off of the lyre or the guitar or the piano or the drums. He puts it where it needs to be in the heart. Because praises are an issue of the heart. And when I say issue, I don't mean it's a heart problem. I mean praises are an issue. They flow out of the heart. They issue forth from the heart. Psalm 45 verse 1, my heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Because worship is the issuance of the heart. I told you Sunday, we're going to do a lot of talking about worship. We're going to be looking at praising throughout the book of Psalms. But I want to tell you something right now that I'm realizing. That is, you cannot teach people how to worship. Oh, you can talk about you know, style and substance and why people lift hands, why people kneel down, why people are face down on the ground. You can talk about different postures. You can talk about attitudes of worship, but you truly can't teach worship because worship is emotional. Worship comes from the heart of the worshiper. It's passionate. It's the overflow of our hearts to God. As we are in love with God, and as we'll see, the Psalms run the entire gamut of human emotion. Worship, my friends, isn't always happy and upbeat. Worship can be sorrowful. Worship can be tearful. Worship can be overwhelming to where you can't hardly get the words out because worship is emotional. And emotions are not a bad thing, they're God given. It's not a good idea to base your faith on emotions or to follow your feelings for your decisions. But to not be emotional when you approach God, it tells me that we don't understand God if we can't approach Him with our hearts moved by Him. It's been said that for every sigh, there is a psalm. And the psalms will go from one end to the other, from the entire spectrum. Again, it's a book of praises, Sefer Tehillim. But also it's a book of process. Book of praises, book of process. And this is what fascinates me in the Psalms. Like our very lives in Christ, this book is going to take us some, some time to process. Far more than a Sunday, Wednesday thing, my hope, my prayer for you is that you will be in the Psalms in between. That you'll go back and you will reread and rethink and rediscover things that perhaps were even missed in our studies, or things that we skimmed over. I found several out of the first chapter of the Psalms from Sunday that we never even talked about. I'll address a couple of them in a few minutes. Things that I didn't even see. It's a book of process. It it all begins with the word blessed. It's the only book in the Bible, by the way, that starts off with the word blessed. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor 
nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law He meditates day and night. Blessed. One word in, and we find ourselves invited by the Spirit of the Lord to delight in and meditate on the law of the Lord. Why? I mean, this is purposeful. Why this psalm first? Because the blessing begins here. The blessing starts with the Word of God. We talked a bit about this on Sunday. Paul calls the law our tutor. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, actually. I think it says 22 up there. It's verse 24. The law is our tutor that, that brings us to Christ. The law leads us to the place where blessedness begins. The law in and of itself is, is wonderful, but it, it's wonderful because it leads us to that place where blessedness begins. That is, in the presence of Jesus, where the heart most longs to be. But when the blessing starts, the praises quickly follow. It's not the other way around. We don't, start, we don't praise our way into the blessing. We discover the blessing of being with Jesus, and praise flows out of that. Praise comes from that. David, my two-year-old, is just figuring some things out. And one of the things he's figured out is when we're on the bridge, we're almost home. Every time we're on the bridge now, he starts getting excited. Just the other day, Cheryl said, watch this. When we come up to the bridge, we're coming out you know, down past Lake and up the hill toward the bridge. Cheryl said, oh, watch, watch, just listen, pay attention, watch what David does. Okay? We get out on the bridge and, and you know... We're 10 feet, 15 feet, he's not doing all of a sudden anything. All of a sudden behind me I hear, I don't know what he's saying. He's speaking Ghanaian, I guess. He just starts talking and, and he's animated and he's waving his arms and he's pointing at the water and, and, and he's, he's doing this kind of thing. He, he recognizes where we are. Hey, this is that place where the, and we're almost home. I'm almost going to get out of this car seat. I've been strapped in. Well, you guys do your errands. He recognizes where we are, where we're going. He knows we're close to home. And he begins to verbalize his joy. That's, that's a picture of the process that we're in in this Christian life. See, we're not there. We're on the bridge. The bridge is Jesus. We are in the presence of Jesus. We're there. And we recognize we're almost home. As we recognize that the praises, the joy begins to come out. See, worship and praise is a natural outflowing of the joy of recognizing we're almost home, of knowing we're in Christ, of feeling and experiencing our blessedness. Which is why you can't teach worship. Worship has got to be felt. It's got to be felt. How much more are we going to worship when we actually get there? I mean, You think it's amazing at times now. Revelation 19, verse 6, John said, I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. It's it's our Hallelujah chorus. In Revelation 19, that's you singing. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it's one of the rare places where we're quoted. Because it's us in the future, in the throne room, worshiping God, praising Him, hallelujah. But it's going to take us time and patience to get there. If it were up to me, 
We wouldn't have ever had this meeting. In fact, the bridge never would have happened as a fellowship because I would have been taken home on the day I accepted Jesus many decades ago. (laughs) Just take me home. But the Lord says, No, Rick, I want you to go through a process. I'm preparing you to come home. I'm taking you into a process. The Psalms are like that. It's going to take time. It's going to take patience to process the Psalms profitably and, and properly. Psalms are by far the longest book in the Bible, spanning 150 chapters. Isaiah is a big one, 66 chapters. Psalms, we have 150. Now, some of those chapters are very short, containing as few as three verses. Other chapters are very long, containing as many as 176 verses, as in Psalm 119. The Psalms are one of the most quoted books of the Bible. In the New Testament alone, it's quoted 116 different times. And it's also, you may not have realized this, five books in one. If you look at the heading above Psalm 1, in many of your Bibles it says Book 1. There will be five of those. It's divided up into five books, and those five books are organized, interestingly, after the five books of the Torah. There's a Genesis section, Book 1. Book 2 is the Exodus section. Book 3, the Leviticus section. Book 4, the Numbers section. And Book 5, the Deuteronomy section. That's the way the Psalms were organized by the earliest of the Hebrew scribes. And almost unlike any other book in Scripture, well, unlike any other, all other books have but one human scribe or human writer. Psalms has a multiplicity of writers. Many different writers in the book of Psalms. Most think of David. Obviously David was the most prolific, writing into the golden age of Israel. This humble shepherd turned warrior king, and yet at the very end of his life, David described himself this way in 2 Samuel 23, verse 1. He called himself the sweet psalmist of Israel. Not sweet as in himself, but sweet as in the psalms that came out. David even recognized These came from the heart, led by, taught by, the Spirit of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And yet, of the 150 psalms, David only wrote 73. So, less than half. We also have Solomon. He wrote just two of the psalms. The sons of Korah wrote 11. Asaph wrote 12. Hezekiah, interestingly, wrote 10 of them. Then we have Ethan, Haman, and Moses, who each wrote one, and it leaves us with 39 psalms of no known author other than we know the Lord. They're called orphanic psalms. Psalms of the orphan. They don't have a mom or a dad who actually wrote them, again, other than the Spirit of God. Now, as we process the book of praises, there's one more thing I want you to watch for before we get into the second of the psalms, and that's this. It's a book of praises book of process it's a book of prophecy and this is one of the most stirring things about the Psalms Luke 24 verse 44 Jesus has appeared to his apostles after his resurrection it's one of the final appearances and he's there with them and he's trying to explain to them and they're still just not getting it you know here he is resurrected and they're like we just didn't see this coming Lord Jesus says in Luke 24 44 these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So, good news. Jesus is all over the pages of the Psalms. The prophetic in the Psalms all point us to Jesus Christ. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter said, The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. I just love that verse. Yes, we know Jesus was with God in the beginning. We understand that. But to hear Peter say the Spirit of Christ was the one speaking to the prophets who were then writing down about the person of Christ. You know, Jesus was involved in all that. Jesus was the motivator. Jesus was the speaker through the prophets who were the mouthpieces. And the Psalms give us some of the most intimate and intricate details of future events of any of the books in the Bible. It's absolutely stunning to read some of these. Even some of them are in the first person, first voice of Jesus himself. As though Jesus were speaking, and of course he is. For example, Psalm 22, verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. Well, Jesus said that. Spoke through the psalmist and written down. Psalm 22, 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What a weird thing to write in a song. What does that mean? They're casting lots for my clothes? What is the writer thinking? He's not. He's prophesying. And it's Jesus speaking. Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And truly in the crucifixion of Jesus, not a single bone was broken, even as the spear went into his side, going between the ribs. The nails into the hands didn't break bone. They broke flesh. And so not a bone of Jesus was broken, fulfilling that prophetic psalm and also the fact that you were not to break the bone of the Passover lamb. Multiple prophecies we will discover in the book of Psalms pointing to literal events that were fulfilled specifically and exactly by Jesus in His first coming. But it doesn't stop there. Because for every prophetic indication of Jesus' first coming, there are more prophetic indications of His second coming. When we studied through Revelation, I said this a couple of different times, that the reason we know that Revelation will be fulfilled precisely and exactly and literally is because everything in Jesus' first coming was fulfilled exactly, precisely, and literally. So why would it be any different the second time around? Psalm 2 verse 6 tells us, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Lord says, I'm going to install my king on Zion. He will rule and reign from there. Psalm 110 verse 1, one of the famous ones. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Jesus took that psalm and directed it to himself. In Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. So by way of introduction, again, we have the book of Psalms, which is packed with praises and prophecies that will take us patience to process. Got that? But as we patiently walk this through, we're going to discover some sweet truths and some deep worship that I pray will open our hearts and fill our spirits and issue forth in praise. Because you can't really teach worship. You've got to feel it. Now, Sunday we began in Book 1, the Genesis section of the Psalms, with Chapter 1, Psalm 1. And the Genesis section, if you want to just note this, is from Psalm 1 through 41. That's the, that's the first book. 1 through 41. And Psalm 1, as you may recall, describes the blessed man. 
There were several things in this psalm that came up to me after the fact. You know, when I finish teaching, oftentimes this happens, I'll be walking home or the next day I'll wake up and I'll go, there's something, there's something there. And I go back and I reread that and I see something that I missed the first time. This is the wonder of Scripture. You can study it a thousand times and still find new pieces of the puzzle. But one of those things, interestingly, I, I got an email from uh, Melinda Gates and she was talking about the chaff. You know how it says in verse 4, the wicked are not so, they're like chaff which the wind drives away. And we talked about how that's what happens if you, if you go the path of the wicked, you're blown away. But there's another interesting point with chaff. It sticks to you. Now I didn't know, I'm not having been a farmer and worked with chaff, I had no idea about this, but Melinda said she remembered her dad coming home from the field. She grew up 18 years, a farm girl. And her dad would come in from the field on harvesting time, harvesting wheat or barley, and be just covered from head to foot with, this, with these little flakes and irritating because, as Les shared with me today, they're, they're curves and so they poke at you and they're uncomfortable. And the only way to get them off is to get washed head to toe. Sin sticks like that. Chaff is a perfect picture of wickedness and sin because you get around it and it starts to get on you and it sticks. And the only way to get it off is to get washed in the blood of the Lamb. Melinda emailed that to me, and I was just sitting there, sitting there going, Why didn't you email this Saturday night? You know, I could have used that Sunday morning. Something else I thought was fascinating, amazing. We talked about how the person who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates it is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, yielding fruit and foliage and fulfillment. Those three things. Fruit, foliage, and fulfillment. There in verse 3. And I skipped over what to me was one of the most important things which yields its fruit in its season. Which means you might not get the fruit immediately. Which means the fruit's not going to come when you want it to. It comes in its season. We've been talking a little bit about you know, the whole idea of altar calls and, and drawing people forward. And, and I've shared with you several times my desire to see people just saved. People coming to Jesus, getting saved. I, that's, that's my heart's cry, my heart's desire. It's what I continue to pray to the Lord. As we gather together, that, that we run out of room, not because people are shifting from other churches as much as because people are coming to Jesus and finding salvation. And sometimes I get frustrated. I go, Lord, it's been six years. You know, I know that's not much compared to 2,000, but still, Lord, it's been a long time. You know what He said to me just... Yesterday, in its season. It's going to bear fruit. In its season, and not before. One other thing to note about this first psalm before we go on. It talks about the blessed man. The person who is delighting in the law, meditating in the law, day and night. Can I just give a show of hands how many of you that describes? Be honest. Come on. Okay, I better put my hand down as well. Day and night, meditating in the Word, delighting in the Word. Oh, I delight in the Word, but day and night? The blessed man does. And guess what? Psalm 1 is not talking about you or me or our ability to get there if we would just do the right stuff. If we would just work hard enough at it. Psalm 1 is describing Jesus Christ. Because He is the blessed man in and of Himself. He delights in the law. In and of Himself, He fulfills the law. 
Jesus is the perfect man, the blessed man. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Why? Because it's His way. Because He is the way of the righteous. And so the Psalms begin talking about Jesus. And you need to see this because Psalm 1 is introductory then as we go on into Psalm 2, which is about the Anointed One, Mashiach, who is again Jesus Christ. I use this verse all the time. I I, I continue to because I want it to get into your head. Psalm 40, verse 7. Behold, Jesus speaking, I come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. And so even as we open up the book of Psalms, it begins with Jesus and with the wicked in contrast to Him. And the second psalm now picks up almost as though in the same exact thought, with the same pen being written, picks up with rebellious man's wicked response to the blessedness of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Start in verse 6 of chapter 1 and we'll continue on. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. The word there is Mashiach. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We're not sure who wrote the first psalm. We know who wrote the second psalm. It was David. How do we know this? Well, Peter gives him credit in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 26. But what's interesting is this second psalm jumps right on the tail end of the first psalm with the raging of rebellion, but now it points to where? Where is all this wickedness directed? Where is the rebellion directed? It is directed against the Lord and His anointed. Against God the Father and His Mashiach, His Savior, His Christ. But why? Why do the nations rage? That's the question we open up with. Why? Why are the nations in such an uproar? Why are they raging against God and against His Christ? And I'll tell you why. It's because they want their freedom. The raging of the nations, and stick with me on this, is all about freedom. I do not, the kings of earth would say, we do not want to be under you. We want to cast off all of your requirements. We don't want to be under your, we want our, we want our power. We want to be under our authority. And it's absolute stupidity. It's complete foolishness. It's inane. Because freedom without obedience is not freedom, it's confusion. It's anarchy. There's truly no such thing as freedom without boundaries. The closest we ever came was Eden, and God placed boundaries around Eden. In fact, the most important boundary in Eden was a tiny little white picket fence around a little tree where God said, don't eat that fruit. God put the fence up. One law, just one rule... Because man needs some kind of boundaries or freedom doesn't work. And even Adam cast off the rule in rebellion. No, we we, we want to do it our way. And if we were there, here's what we would say. I guarantee it, eventually we'd be having our little meetings and committees talking about how that fruit looked good. And of course, there's only one reason why God didn't want us to eat that fruit. Why is that? Because He doesn't want us to have any fun. Because God's a killjoy. Because there's something in that fruit that's tasty and He's just wanting to keep it for Himself. Unfair, we would cry. You're limiting our happiness. 
We want our freedom, we would declare. You bound us in this prison of the Garden of Eden, we would say. We're all boxed in, we would complain. Without obedience to the authority of the Anointed One, freedom is lost. Listen to this. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. I have had Christian brothers tell me that because of that, they can do anything they want. Sin-wise in the world because, hey, I'm free in Christ, man. I'm under grace. Therefore, if I want to sleep around, I can sleep around. If I want to get drunk, I can get drunk. If I want to do drugs, I can do drugs because, hey, I'm free in Christ. I'm saved by grace, right? That's not freedom. That's stupidity. That's idiocy. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. But in verse 7 of that same chapter, Paul says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What? Over here you said, It was for freedom we've been set free. And right here you're saying, but you've got to obey the truth. Well, which is it? It's both. Because without obedience to the truth of God, you will not experience true freedom. The joy of freedom is only found in obedience to a perfect authority. Let me say that again. Perfect freedom is only found in obedience to perfect authority. And the nations don't want it. Which is why they rage. Which is why they gather together against the Lord and against His anointed. They rage. They take their counsel together. Nations who hate each other and yet come together because they have something in common that they're angry about. Let me ask you this. Does anyone really believe that the annihilation of Israel would bring about peace in the Middle East? I mean, do you know what the Middle East was like when Israel was not a nation there? It was bloodshed and violence and tribal warfare. And it would go right back there again. People forget about the Iran-Iraq war that ran and raged over ten years, costing millions of lives. It had nothing to do with Israel. And they say, well, we, we'll have peace in the Middle East as soon as we get rid of Israel. I, I told you I read that book, uh, Six Days of War. And what it points out in there that's very interesting is Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, the primary players attacking Israel or going against Israel in this war, They hated each other. These three Arab nations. They tried to band together to have a a kind of an Arabic league. And it failed because they hated each other. They didn't trust each other. They didn't like each other. But with Israel there, they had a common enemy. And so they had at least one reason to aim their weapons and their anger and their hatred in one direction rather than at each other. In Jesus' day, The most unifying moment of Jews and Romans was the crucifixion. Two peoples who hated each other. But when it came to the common enemy, the Lord's anointed, they had no problem gathering together. And that's what he's talking about here. That they they take their stand against the Lord and against His anointed. And by the way, opposing nations will once again join together for battle globally at the end. It's a fascinating picture. Daniel 11 speaks of this last battle there at Harmageddon where the nations are out and they're in the valley and they're duking it out. In fact, what happens is Antichrist loses control and everything begins to break down. 
his authority, his control of the world. It breaks down and the nations gather there in Megiddo to fight one another and to fight against Antichrist. And their war is raging until something happens. In a moment of ludicrous insanity, Jesus comes riding in on the clouds. He's not the ludicrous one or the insane one. But they see him coming and amazingly, they freak out and they turn all their weaponry and fury in the direction of Jesus. All of this fighting here, they look up, here he comes, oh, get him! And they all aim upward, and boom, (laughs) Revelation 19, verses 19 through 21, picks up the drama with the last, final piece of this last scene in this horrific throwdown of rebellion, where the kings of earth take their stand against the anointed one, and the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, the rebellious of mankind suddenly slain, become bird food. It is ridiculous. It is insane that the rulers of our world would take a stand against God and against His Christ. Perhaps knowing this is, this is why the Lord laughs. We're told in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Now, i got to be honest, this verse always bothered me. Not that God doesn't have a right to laugh, and not that man doesn't look completely foolish and and stupid, but the fact that God scoffs just doesn't seem like His character, does it? It doesn't sound like God to me when I read that verse. God, you're laughing scornfully. You're scoffing at them. What's going on here? The laughter of God that the psalmist describes here is what we could call an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism, it's describing God using human terminology to the best of our ability. And so David here is trying to give a picture of God's laughter. And it's not that God is up there trash-talking. It's not that He's making fun of, scornfully, gleefully enjoying man's descent into rebellion. Let me put it this way. It's like Naomi, when she gets frustrated with me, and Cheryl's always telling me, fathers, do not exasperate your children. I try not to. But when she gets really frustrated, she makes these little fists. And she goes, I'm going to bonk you on the head. And inside I'm laughing. I'm not scorning her. You know, I'm not scoffing. I'm not making fun of her. But I'm just seeing, I see these tiny little, cute, precious fists. And I'm like, you know, bonk away. How much damage can she really do? But that's kind of what we're talking about. This is a laughter of incredulity. You think that you can rebel and rid yourself of me, your creator. Is that... Really? That's absurd. It's it's preposterous. This is your response to my love and affection and sacrifice for you? The Lord in heaven laughs. You've got to be kidding. You want to break... You don't even know what you're talking about. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I love that when he says this. I have installed my king. Past tense. It's a done deal. Many times in the Bible we'll have phrases like this, proleptic phrases. That is, they're written in such a way, they're they're written as though they've already happened, even though they may not have happened yet. Like Paul saying in Ephesians, we've been seated with Him in the heavenly places. Really? So, this is as good as the seats get? 
you know, these little folding chairs? No, it's a proleptic phrase. It is such an absolutely assured thing that God speaks of it as, as though it's already done. I have installed my king. Done deal. He's there in Zion, ready to rule. Though he's not quite yet, but he is because it's a finished thing. But how was Jesus installed as king? The word installed there is also literally anointed or consecrated as king. How did that happen? Keep your finger there and go to the book of Hebrews chapter 5. All the way over to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 5. I want to read to you three of the most difficult verses in the entire Bible. Fascinating and telling in these verses what the Hebrew writer explains to us about literally the installment or consecration of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Hebrews 5 verse 7. In the days of His flesh, speaking about Jesus, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Listen, God heard Jesus' prayers. He did not ignore Jesus. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God heard. Before that, when he said, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will, God heard the prayers. Because of the righteousness of Christ. It was all heard. But the plan was in motion, was set in place. Verse 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus learned. I thought Jesus was God, and if he's God, he would already know all things. How could he learn? Read one more verse. Let's push it a little further. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of of eternal salvation being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And you want to know who Melchizedek is? Go to Genesis 14 and then read Hebrews 7 and you'll find out who Melchizedek truly is. Won't get into that tonight. But it tells us that he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. The Greek word learned, note this, is matheo. And matheo literally means understood. Learned is one translation, understood is the other, and it fits. Jesus understood obedience. This is mind-boggling. That God became flesh, and in becoming flesh would understand what it meant for fleshly man to obey God. God is not a God who says, I want you to obey me and do as I say. He's a God who says, I want you to do as I've done. I want you to obey me in the same way that I (laughs) obeyed me. In other words, I get it. I'm not asking you to to do anything I haven't already done myself. I'm inviting you into the same walk that I myself walked. The walk of obedience. Jesus came to understand that experience of human obedience from the things which he suffered. And then verse 9, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. This is the installment. This is the consecration. Jesus was made perfect on the cross. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was already perfect. He was. But having been made perfect, that word in the Greek is teleos. Having finishing, finished everything. Having completed 
It's not that Jesus was more perfect than he was before, but he completed the task on the cross. And it was that moment of completion that is the installment that we're talking about. Back, You can go back there in the second psalm. He understood, he experienced the place of pure obedience, he completed the task before him, being fully consecrated, a high priest forever. And my friends, Jesus' anointing was the bloodiest anointing in history because the anointing of Jesus to reign and rule over us happened on Calvary. It happened at the cross. Where other kings before him, David, Solomon, the kings down the line after him were all anointed with oil. Jesus was anointed with his own blood on the cross. Completing everything. It was perfect. Back in Psalm 2, verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron or literally scepter and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Really, does Jesus have the right to do that? Does He have the right to rule and the right to be in authority and the right to be the boss over all the earth? You bet He does. Because he was installed at the cross. Sanctified, consecrated, anointed there at Calvary. But this is a little confusing because in verse 6 God is saying, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then he says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, now we're going back 33 years to his birth? No. Because when God says, I have begotten you today, it is an event that followed, track this with me, it followed His anointing. The begottenness of Jesus, when God says, today I have begotten you, came after the crucifixion, not before. What are you talking about? I'll let Paul explain it to you. Acts 13.33 Paul said, God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Listen, the begottenness of Jesus was the resurrection. That's what God was talking about when He said, Today I have begotten you. Today I have birthed you. From death to life eternal, you were installed as king, anointed, consecrated on the cross, and then you were begotten in the new birth as of the first fruits. Jesus, the first to be born again into eternity. And that's what he's talking about there. Jesus experienced obedience in crucifixion and by resurrection he is consecrated to rule over all. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 2.9 For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So those three verses, they're powerful verses. God the Father is speaking about God the Son, saying He's consecrated Him through the crucifixion. He has begotten Him through the resurrection. And He will surely give the nations as His inheritance. That will happen at the second coming. So it's even chronological right there, those three verses. By the way, you might want to note this. In the second psalm, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present. Because again, in those few verses we just read, verses 6 through 9, the Father speaks of the Son. In verses 10 through 12, now the Spirit invites us to worship the Son. Listen to this, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. 
Take warning, O judges or leaders of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Verse 12, do homage. Literally means turn and kiss. Turn and kiss the Son. And this phrase here, do homage, is the very root of worship. To turn and kiss the Son. To turn to God and to kiss. It's a blend of passion and deep respect. Of overwhelming love for the Son and deep reverence for His rule. Do homage to the Son. You may also note in verse 12 it says, For His wrath may soon be kindled. The word soon there is literally suddenly. For when the wrath of Christ comes, it will be a sudden thing. It's not going to slowly gear up and pick up steam as it goes. It will be instantaneous when God begins to pour out His wrath. And the second psalm ends, How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. So we're back to the place of blessing. Our refuge in the blessed man, Jesus Christ. We take refuge in Him and we are ourselves blessed. Now, the third psalm. We come to in Psalm 3, 4, and 5 a trilogy. David writing these psalms. It's a trilogy of psalms that I like to call the honey butter sandwich. Because that's the way these three psalms read. And you need to take them together and look at this. I I told Les earlier today, one of the joys that I'm already having in looking ahead and studying ahead and thinking through the psalms, I've never studied through them like this. I've read through them many times. But I've never studied through book by book and, and seen the interrelationship of one psalm to another. It's like if, you, if you've watched reruns of a show and there's no continuity to it because they just kind of throw up whatever show. And then you go back and you get the DVD series and you begin to watch from the beginning and you see how it progresses. Well, that's what's happening with the psalms. There's a progression, one leading into the next. Psalm 3, 4, and 5 are what I call the honey butter sandwich. Psalm 3 and 5 are the bread. They're like the, that thick, heavy grain bread you can buy at a bakery. You know, it's got the nuts and seeds in it, and you eat it, and it's all in your teeth, but it's, it's solid, you know. It's going to stay with you for a while. Psalm 4, in between, is like honey butter. It's sweet, and it draws the other two together. So watch this. The first slice of bread is a morning petition for strong defense. Psalm 3, verse 1. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God, Selah. We don't normally read Selah. We think, oh, that's just like an apostrophe or some weird little thing. It's a musical interlude. It's a pause. But before we even get to the Selah, these first two verses, David is writing on the run. Such is the sweet psalmist of Israel that even as he's running in in fear and trying to get away to save his life, he's writing a song. It's amazing. Many of your Bibles know this. He was running from his rebellious son Absalom, who was trying to usurp the throne. Now this follows, interestingly, on the heels of Psalm 2 and the rebellion of man. And now we get to Psalm 3 and we get the rebellion of a son against his father. In the same way that Psalm 2 is the rebellion of man against our Father. And so now, a more specific and personal one, David is is running and he's saying, they're all against me. Everything is falling apart here, Lord. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. Selah. He pauses. 
the word Selah, we'll see this a lot throughout the Psalms. It's a pause. It's possibly a musical interlude. And by the way, there are reasons we do this. Here at the bridge, when we're singing choruses and verses, oftentimes, you know, we come to a place and there's nothing but music. Those moments of musical interlude are for you to draw further into the Lord. All worship is not singing. It's not all words, blah, blah, blah. But sometimes we need to pause. We need to say law in the music. And so there will be a section where there's nothing but music going on. And it is intentional. It is my intention that we're not singing through, that we're shutting up for a few minutes and letting the music flow in the background, allowing you to focus on the Lord and what's being sung and what you're saying in worship and where your heart is. That's Selah. And David here pauses. He pauses to consider this opening statement. That his adversaries have increased and people are saying, there's no deliverance for him in God. There are those who say, God doesn't care for you. There's no deliverance for you. You're on your own. And David pauses for a moment. In the music. Now this story we see in 2 Samuel 15 and 16. Absalom trying to usurp the throne. As David fled the city, you may recall the story, there was a man named Shimei, a self-proclaimed prophet. And he's running along the ridge. As David's descending out of the city. Running along the ridge and he's throwing rocks and dirt at David. And he's shouting criticism at him. And he's saying this very thing. You have no help, no deliverance in God. You know, he's calling him a sinner and you're a mess and you're a problem for him. You need to get out of here. And he's throwing rocks and dirt. And the reason he's throwing dirt is not because he ran out of rocks. It's because to throw dirt is to say, I'd like you to be under the dirt. You know, six feet under. For a Hebrew to throw dirt is to say, I'd like to bury you. And this Shimei is doing this, and I love this Abishai, one of David's right-hand men. He just wanted permission. Can I just go up on the mountain, pin him down, and chop off his head? Would that be okay with you, David? And King David says, no, let him be. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, if what he is saying is from the Lord, then I need to hear it. If what he is saying is not from the Lord, God will deal with him. What a perfect way to respond to criticism. Huh? You're criticized, someone's coming down on you, someone's pointing out a fault or a flaw or something you did wrong. Instead of getting all up in defense, how about pausing for a moment and thinking, okay, is this of the Lord? God, did, did you send this critic into my life to correct my direction? Or is the critic just an idiot? If they're just an idiot, guess what? God's going to deal with their idiocy. But if it's from the Lord, you want to hear it. And this is where David's heart was. It's a great response to criticism. The truth is, for every David, there's a Shimei. For every person who is passionately following the Lord, there is someone criticizing that following. So Selah, David lets that hang in the air. And then verse 3, But, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. Oh, we sing that. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and He answered me from His holy mountain. Selah. David's fleeing. He's fleeing Zion, the city he loves. Oh, David, David's heart was there in Jerusalem, partially because that's where the temple would be, but primarily because he just, he just loved Jerusalem. His home city was the place of his capital, and he knew in his heart that's where God wanted him to be. And he's fleeing. Where does he say his answer comes from? Where did he say God answered him from? His holy mountain. 
Okay, it's Selah. Pause for a moment. Where's that? What mountain are we talking about here? There are many mountains around Jerusalem. Well, it's not Mount Moriah. Location of the Temple Mount. Location of the crucifixion a thousand years later. It's not Mount Zion. The answer comes from all of it. The Mount of Olives. And I find that fascinating. Second Samuel 15.30 says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. You could do that. You come out of, off of Mount Moriah. You have Mount Zion and then down a dip and then Mount Moriah and then you dip down into the Kedron Valley and come back up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. And that's where David was running. He crossed the Kedron. He's going up the Mount of Olives. And it says he wept as he went. His head was covered and he walked barefoot. All the people who were with him each covered his head and went weeping as they went because the kingdom was a mess. Absalom is gearing up and turning the army against him. And so David is camped out there on all of it that night. And that's where the answer came to David. And after hearing it, look at what happens. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke. For the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, and you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. This is fantastic. Listen, when you get into the place of distress, sail off for a moment, pause, and sleep. Sometimes half of my distress is just because I'm tired and not thinking straight. You know? Selah, sleep beneath the shield of the Lord. Thou, Lord, art a shield about me, he says. And his answer comes from the Mount of Olives. He falls asleep and when he wakes, he's ready. His faith is strengthened. It's renewed. He's standing up. And Lamentations 3.22 tells us the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so David would say to you, to me, Selah, sleep beneath the shield. And when you wake, know this to be true. Your best answer comes from the Mount of Olives. What? Your best answer. It comes from all of it. Because that's the Mount Jesus ascended from in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. That's the Mount Jesus will return to, Zechariah 14, verse 4. The last place of Jesus' foot before He left earth, and the first place He's going to touch down, it's the Mount of Olives. And your answer comes from there. Oh, not the mountain, but from Jesus Christ. Rest in Him. Sleep in Him. Selah. Sleep and let Jesus be the shield for you. Now Psalm 4 follows in combination Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is the bread. You know, He's calling out for the defense of the Lord. He comes to that place where he believes the Lord will defend him. And then we get to Psalm 4. It's the honey butter. You ready for this? It's an evening psalm of sweet dependence. Psalm 4 verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. By the way, you might note some of your Bibles write this. It is an evening prayer of trusting God for the choir director on stringed instruments. Or literally they are plucked instruments. Instruments that are, the strings are being pulled and plucked to be played. And, and David's feeling this way. You know, he's being plucked. He's just been plucked out of his rule. 
momentarily by his son. So he's writing, I want this to be plucked. And, and this is a sweet psalm, but I, I have a feeling it probably had a beat. It had a little groove to it. He says, Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Verse 2, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? And then he pauses, Selah. I want you to note something there in verse 1. Where he says, You have relieved me in my distress. The word relieved is literally made room for. You have made room for me. Another little Naomi story, and I'll I'll try not to tell you anymore. But uh, we read together every night. And she's gotten used to a little word that that we use that she laughed at the first time she heard it. And now she just loves to say it herself. And the word is scooch. You know, she's there on the bed and and she's always right near the end of the bed and and I'm going to get in bed to read next to her and I always say, scooch over, scooch over. And so now she'll look up and I come in and she'll say, should I scooch? (laughs) And she scooches over. And that's, that's what we're talking about here. You have made room for me. You relieved me in my distress. You made room for me. You scooched over. So there will be room for me in my distress. I think that's wonderful. Now here David is looking out over Jerusalem. Again, kind of like the father in Psalm 2. And David is incredulous. He's amazed. Sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? He's just, I can't, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I cannot believe the fickleness of the people. And then David's confidence rises up in verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. And there's the honey butter. There's the sweetness. It's the trust. Sweet trust in the Lord. David, in the midst of this turmoil with Absalom, is reaching the place of trust. Sweet trust. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. It's a sweet psalm of the evening. He's had a bad day. day before, he comes up there, up the side of the Mount of Olives. Everything's bad. It's turmoil. And yet, he says, God's my shield, and he falls asleep. And the next day, as he's processing through the day, he comes to the end of the day. He's been watching all this going on there across the Kidron Valley, all the, the rebellion against him, and it just doesn't make sense to him. But then David says, but you know, I've got the Lord. I've got the Lord. Who else do I need? Sweet trust. And once again, in peace, he lies down. He falls asleep. Look, look back at verse 4 one more time. He says, Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. How many of you have ever done this? You're lying in bed and you're tossing and you're turning and you're running scenarios through your brain as to how you're going to deal with something the next day. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to tell my boss exactly what he needs to hear because, you know, he's being a jerk. And how am I going to say that? Here's what I'm going to do. You know, or a coworker. I've got to confront this person. This is driving me nuts. Or a family member. When I see his face at breakfast, I am so going to tell him what I'm feeling right now. He's over there just breathing, snoring, and being loud. You know, it, 
tossing and turning and frustrated, the best thing to do in those situations, scooch over. Scooch over. What do you mean? Make room for the Lord. Make room for the Lord to slide in next to you. Because more often than not, the Lord is whispering, Look, scooch over. I made room for you in your distress. Now would you make room for me in your distress? How would our lives be if instead of melatonin or Xanax or sleepy time Tylenol, we instead chose to simply pray? I guarantee you, if you're stressed out, if you're worked up, if you're wide awake, if you're having trouble getting the rest that you need, if you will just go to the Lord in prayer, I guarantee you, you will fall asleep in the arms of your Father. Make room for Him. Well, this brings us to the next morning and that second slice of whole grain bread. So we've got one nice slice there of the defense of God, the honey butter in the middle that is sweetly trusting in the Lord, and we get to the second slice of bread. It's a second morning petition for strong defense. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Hear the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. I like this verse. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. It's a prayer of expectation. It's opening your eyes at the beginning of the day and expecting God to hear your prayer. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to watch and see what He does. I love that. That's faith. I'm praying now at the beginning of the day, Lord, let's see what you're going to do with it. Let's see how you're going to handle the boss instead of me. Let's see how you're going to work restoration in in my marriage instead of me. Let's see how you're going to help me deal with my teenager instead of me. Lord, go before me. David knew how to start the day. So did Jesus. Mark 1.35 tells us in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. If you ever wonder, how did Jesus do it? How did he keep his focus during those three years of ministry and the intense criticism that he came under? It's because he always started off with the Lord. He started every day in prayer. And if we start the day with him, we're inviting him to walk out the rest of the day with us. And so we don't head into the day alone. No, we head into the day with our Father. We love to sing the song, I will seek you in the morning. I will learn to walk in your ways. It's a great time to start. Isaiah 50 verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Listen, you wake up because God has tapped you on the shoulder. Hey, it's time to get up. And far too often we roll out of bed going, Okay, i got to get going, got things to do. And we completely miss the person who just gave the wake-up call, which is the Lord. He's there waiting. Start the day with him. Verse 4. Verse 4 he says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. David draws a bold picture in these three verses of absolute holiness of total righteousness of God, even to the point where David says, you hate 
all those who do iniquity. Matthew Henry put it this way, God is a sin-hating God. He's a sin-hating God. And you might notice there in those verses, there are two primary sins, two primary acts of wickedness that are particularly abhorrent to God. Did you notice those? The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. If there are two sins that God hates, it's murder and lying. Why? Well, two reasons. First of all, because murder and lying are trademarks of the disposition of the devil. Jesus said in John 8.44, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and a father of lies. Murder and lying are acts of Satan. This is what he does. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, Jesus said. I come that you might have life and have it abundantly. God hates murder and hates lying because they are so of Satan. They are Satan's primary tools. Murder and deception. And if he can't murder physically, he's going to murder character. And he's going to use deception and lies and twisting things because this is how Satan functions. They're trademarks of the devil. No wonder God hates them so much. But they're also, conversely, they are transgressions against the very nature of God. Who couldn't be further away from either one. You see... He's full of mercy, not murder. And He is the truth, not a liar. There is not a murderous thought in God, nor is there any deception. And God hates these things because He is absolute holiness, He's absolute righteousness, and remember, God knows where the full extent of wickedness goes. He knows where wickedness lands people. Well, how does He know? Because He hung there on the cross. He took all of the sin. He experienced in and of Himself all of the wickedness. He knows where wickedness goes. Jesus felt the full weight of our wickedness with the cross on His back. Verse 7, David says, But as for me, your abundant loving kindness, it's that great word chesed, it's the Old Testament word for grace, your abundant loving kindness... By that I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will bow down in reverence for you. Wow! Wow! Do you see what David just did? In verses 4, 5, and 6, David paints this picture of of the wicked and how God hates wickedness. And then in verse 7, do you see what David did not do? He did not compare himself saying, look at what a righteous guy I am. No, he said... By your abundant loving kindness I will enter your house. At your holy temple I will bow down in reverence to you. He doesn't contrast the enemy's wickedness with his own self-righteousness. No, instead of exalting himself, David just exalts God's righteousness. Because it's not, they're evil and I'm good. It's, that's evil and he's good. And if there's any goodness in me, it's by his loving kindness. It's his grace, his chesed that makes anything worth being good in me. At this point later in David's life, he is able to recognize the mercy of God, which is what allows him entrance into the house of the Lord. Verse 8, O Lord, he says, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. 
there's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. I mean, that's a graphic statement. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against who? Against you. This is all in the context of the rebellion of Absalom. And David's not saying, they're rebelling against me. They're usurping my kingdom. No, it's all about the Father. They're rebelling against you, Lord, because you're the one who anointed me king. That's the only reason I'm there. This is your people. This is your Israel. And the rebellion here, therefore, is against you. Remember, David was the one who would not murder Saul because Saul was God's anointed. Even after David was anointed, he wouldn't murder Saul. Because until God dealt with Saul, David was not going to mess with what belonged to the Lord. He makes this all about God. It's all about the Lord for David. And in verse 11 he says, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them. And those who love your name may exult in you. What's great here is instead of getting bummed out and fearful and frustrated and upset, David would say, try this. Jump and shout. Now, I want to encourage you to give this a try sometime. You're going to need to find somewhere where there's no one around because it may seem a little strange. Go out on a hiking trail somewhere when you're bummed, when you're upset. Go out somewhere where there isn't anybody around and start jumping and shouting praises. And see what happens to your demeanor. See where your depression goes. I mean, you're smiling just thinking about it. Can you just imagine this? This is what he says. Let them ever sing for joy. Let those who love your name exult. The word exult means to jump. Let those who love your name jump up in you. I get the picture of the lame man in the temple who Peter healed and is now jumping and leaping and praising God. He's exulting. He can't stop. And if we're struggling... We're bummed out. We feel like the world's against us. Man, jump out of bed with a shout. Get up in the morning and praise the Lord. You will find your fears fading away. And he ends this psalm. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. And once again, we're right back to the source of blessing. That is, the man of blessing, Jesus Christ. He is our shield. He is the one who surrounds us. He is the righteous man. And He is the one who blesses us. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, listen, I want to leave you with one last thing and we're done tonight. The Hebrew Scriptures deal physically with things that we are to deal with spiritually. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul goes into depth talking about this, that what happened to them was an example to us so that we wouldn't fall in the same way that they fell. And as we've been going through the Scriptures here, we've seen physical, tangible things that have happened to Israel, but they're spiritual pictures for you and for me. What do you mean? Well, if you look back where David says in verse 7 of Psalm 3, You have smitten all my enemies on the cheek and you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. (laughs) I think 
Can I pray that? Can I pray that God would shatter the teeth of those who are against me? Just do it, God. May their car drive off the road. May a tree go through their windshield and shatter their teeth, Lord. (laughs) That'd be great. Well, are we to pray this kind of thing? What we see in the Old Testament and among the Jewish people in the physical is a picture for us in the spiritual. David's praying against his enemies and he's making it all about the will and the action and the defense of the Father and we can do the same. Not pray for the smashing of their teeth, but we can pray against our enemy, which Paul says is, tells us is not flesh and blood. We know who our enemy is. It's the devil. It's not the boss at work. It is not the spouse with whom you're having trouble. It is not the friend who's turned against you. It's not the people who have rebelled against you. It's not those who have turned you in for mistakes you've made. That is not the enemy. The devil is the enemy. And we can say, Lord, break the teeth of the devil that his deceit would not get out. Father, fight for me. Smite him on the cheek so that he can't have power against me. Make your prayers about the Lord the way David did every morning, every evening, every moment of our lives. We are under the authority of the anointed King. We have the authority of Jesus Christ over us. Can you grasp that? What that means? Can you... God said He's already installed on Zion. I have installed my King. Let me ask you, can you even imagine tonight Jesus on the throne in Jerusalem. He's going to be there. Scripture's clear about that. He will rule and reign from there. God says, Christian, sons, daughters, for you, He's there. He's already installed. His power, His authority, His presence is already there. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Our security in the Lord is found in the sweetness of trust. Like that honey butter of Psalm 4, you know, sandwiched in between Psalm 3 and 5. It is the sweetness of trust in our all-powerful Savior and King Jesus Christ. That sweetness holds our defense and our favor and righteousness. It holds it together. And I believe that's what God is calling us to sweet trust tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, it is late evening. Many of us from here will be heading home and settling down and getting ready to go to bed. May we, oh Lord, may we, as David wrote, tremble and meditate in our hearts upon our beds and be still this very night. May we, as David, Father in the morning, Awaken with you. Lay our day out before you. Tomorrow, practically, Father, may we just come to you as we open our eyes and say, Father, walk with me today. And go before me as a shield today. And reveal your power before me today. And Father, I pray as we open the Psalms that you will instill these things in our heart and bring them to the point of overflowing 
that will become for us our very praise and worship of You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.